everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, then welcome. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter, and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife, Lacey, and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. So I hope that you guys all had a uh, wonderful Christmas, um, a great time with your family. If you're like me, then you're probably still recovering from having eaten too much. Uh, but, you know, this is the last podcast of the year. And so I want to set before you guys something just to consider as we move into 2022, uh, as we begin a new year. You know, new years are oftentimes uh, times in which we make a bunch of really ambitious, great goals that we have entirely forgotten about by the time February rolls around. But I want to set something in front of you to consider and make it a personal goal of yours in 2022. First, though, let's uh, let's look at a couple of quotes from two famous people. Um, and these quotes seem uh, initially contradictory, but they both bring something really, really important to the table. The first quote is from C.S. Lewis. He said, and I quote, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. And that's the end of the quote. And that is from his book, The Weight of Glory. Now, let me contrast that with a quote by A.W. Tozer. Um, Tozer said, and I'm quoting now, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's the end of the quote. That's from The Knowledge of the Holy, uh, which is a famous book of his. And so at first glance, it sounds like those two things are completely contradictory. But I would suggest that they're not necessarily contradictory. I think that they just both bring something very, very helpful to the table. The angle that the that C.S. Lewis is getting at is, is much more, it's like, well, okay, what we think about God is kind of irrelevant um, if, you know, it's not, doesn't line up with what he thinks about us. Or in other words, it's uh, what we think about God just doesn't really matter so much if it doesn't line up with the, the truth of the matter. And so this is kind of reaching back somewhat into the episode, I Never Knew You, a few episodes back, about how there is a group of people who um, who believe that they're born again. They have a certain idea, but uh, but how they think that God sees them is actually incorrect. Uh, they they may think that you know God sees them as His children when in reality they have not actually um, truly placed their faith or their trust in Jesus and they're not actually His children. They're still estranged from Him. And so let me just give you a couple of verses real quick. Romans five. Uh, I'll read six through ten. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if what... For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Uh, And that's the end of the passage. And so here we see that, you know, apart from Jesus, what are we? We're sinners. 
apart from Jesus, we're enemies. And so it says, but he, God chose his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so this passage is very much showing how, you know, God in his love through Christ has reconciled us to himself. But also from this passage, we see our condition apart from being reconciled through Jesus. Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, in, in John 14, where Jesus very famously said, I am the way, the tr- uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so we see that, you know, in Christ, we are reconciled to God. Um, but apart from Christ, there is no hope. Apart from Jesus, there is there is zero hope for peace with God. Because like he said in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through him. Um, and let's see here, let me actually look at this from a slightly the opposite side of the coin. 2 Corinthians 5 here talks about, let's see, Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one says, "For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." And so I was just talking about our condition apart from Jesus, and this talks about our condition in Christ. Here, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so this is very important, and this is kind of what I believe C.S. Lewis is getting at, where he's saying, "Well, what does God think about us? Because if we're in Christ, then He sees us as the righteousness." of Christ Jesus. He sees us um, in, in light of his son and what his son has done. He sees us as, you know, pure, clean, holy. We're able to be in his presence. Um, all of this because of what Jesus has done. Conversely, though, if we're not, um, if we haven't placed our faith and trust in Jesus um, as our Lord and our Savior, then he doesn't see us as his children. Um, let's see here. Uh, John 1 12 through 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's the end of the passage. And so what's my point here? It's like, who are those who are the children of God? Well, it's those who believed in his name. Now make no mistake. We're all God's creation. We're all God's creatures. I mean, every single one of us, but we're not all God's children. But anybody could become God's child right away by placing their faith and their trust in him, by believing in his name. And so I think that this is what C.S. Lewis is getting at. Um, It's just very much, well, what does God think about me? How does he see me? Where do I stand with him? Am I I righteous in his eyes? Have I been... um, have I been washed clean from my sins? Has, you know, do I have Jesus's righteousness by placing my faith and my trust in him? Am I his child? And so these are all extremely important questions that we can't ignore. Um, and these all have to do with what God thinks about us, how he sees us. Uh, and I think that this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at. In fact, let me return to the C.S. Lewis quote right now and read even more of it. So he said, and I quote, uh, again, some of this will be repeated. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, 
to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And that's the end of the quote. And so we see, as as Lewis continued to expound on what he was saying, it very much lines up with what we've been talking about here, talking about when we stand before him, about um, surviving that examination, to use his own terminology. And so how can any of us stand before him? It's And how are any of us made clean? Well, from the verses that we've already seen, just that I've already read, it's in Christ Jesus alone. In him, we're the righteousness of God. In him, we are children of God. And so we see that's where C.S. Lewis is coming from. And so let's return to A.W. Tozer's quote and spend some time on his. And so I'm going to read that in uh, greater length as well, not just the portion I read earlier. So A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And that's the end of the quote. And uh, just as a quick side note, um, C.S. Lewis uh, said what he said in 1941, and A.W. Tozer said what he said in 1978. So whenever Lewis is saying, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God, that's not, he's not referencing Tozer. He's not like poking Tozer in the eye because he wrote this uh, decades before uh, Tozer wrote what he wrote. But what is what is kind of the point of Tozer's quote here? He says, I want to reread one portion here. He says, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And so this is where it really begins to intersect with our lives really, really clearly, because we all have an idea of what God is like. We all have a mental image of his character, of um, what pleases him, what displeases him, how he feels towards us. Just in general, we have a portrait of God in our minds. And so this is where the rubber really meets the road. Is that portrait accurate? Do we have a right understanding of God? Do we know him well? And I'm not talking about whether or not we're born again, because uh, we can be born again and not understand God very well at all. We can have wrong ideas of God and be born again. Just because someone's a Christian and a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that um, he or she uh, perfectly understands the Lord. Indeed, none of us are going to perfectly understand anything this side of heaven, but we, this is a question of trajectory. Are we moving in the direction of understanding God better and better and better? Are we knowing him more and more and more? Because what we think about God is of vital importance because what we think about God is going to influence how we view everything. And especially as it pertains to what we think about, um, 
God's perception of us. And this is where these two quotes begin to overlap and really, um, really intersect. And so, for example, just as a quick example, if we think that God is being, you know, hypercritical towards us, that he's always watching us, just waiting to, um, just to, uh, basically smack us over the head whenever we make any sort of mistake at all, that's probably going to lean, uh, lead to us being very critical intense human beings as well. If we think that that's how God is towards us, we're going to find ourselves oftentimes being that way towards other people. And I think that this is what Tozer was kind of getting at when he says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. That's an amazing quote. That's a fantastic point that the way we kind of drift towards our idea of what God is like. And so we, we have to make sure that our idea of the Lord is accurate. And so this leads right into what I mentioned at the very beginning, which is what I'm going to encourage you guys to do as we move into 2022, uh, and is something that I'm doing as well. And that is just asking the question that I've been alluding to this whole time of, well, what is the Lord like? What is he actually like? Because we need to make sure that our understanding of him is accurate, that it reflects the truth of who he is. Because here's the thing, um... If we believe something false about God, that's going to have all sorts of impacts on our life. It's going to have all sorts of impacts on how we interpret uh, uh, our circumstances. It's going to have impacts on what we uh, expect to happen. It's going to impact how um, we think the Lord feels towards us at any given time. It's going to impact how we interact with and view other people. It's going to impact really everything. And so we have to ask the question, is what I'm believing about God true? I've mentioned Pastor Craig Rochelle's um, really popular book on this podcast before that's entitled Winning the War in Your Mind, and it's an excellent read. Um, I think that every every single solitary Christian should read this book. But one of the points that he makes in this book is that a lie that is believed to be true can impact us in a similar way that the truth does. And so um, this is, uh, let me, an example would perhaps be helpful here. If I think, if I believe that I'm rejected, that people are going to reject me and all, um, and uh, that I just have that sort of paradigm, that sort of filter whenever I go into circumstances, I'm going to naturally find that in my circumstances. I'm going to read it into my situations, and it may or may not actually be true, but I'm going to read it into it if that's the filter that I've got on. And, uh, you know, so we have to make sure that our subjective perception lines up with the objective truth. Because there is an objective truth about the matter. There just is. And so this is true of our relationship with God. So using the example of rejection, if I feel like I am, if I'm afraid that the Lord's going to reject me or abandon me or forsake me, then I, you know, am going to read that into certain things. If my circumstances aren't going the way that I might want them to, then I may interpret that as the Lord's rejection. If, um, if the Lord ever convicts me over any particular sin in my mind, it'll move beyond just helpful conviction of the Holy Spirit to build me up into full on rejection and disapproval of the Lord. You see, it'll just kind of go beyond what it actually even is. But the fact of the matter is, is the Bible says that, you know, God will never leave us nor forsake us in, uh, in Hebrews 13, 13, 5. And so we have to make sure that our understanding of the Lord lines up with what's actually true about him. So how can we do this? This is all really, you know, 
fantastic theory, but how do we actually make this work? Well, just a couple of practical things, and this is uh, what you can start doing at the beginning of the year. What I am, uh, what I actually began doing today is I am just going to read through the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm going to not move very quickly at all. Like I read um, Matthew chapter one today, just the first chapter. And so it'll take, I believe all in all, if I did my math correctly, there's what, 89 chapters between the four gospel accounts. And so if I do a chapter a day, 89 days, and so it's almost three months, but I'm going to go through and I'll even go slower than that if necessary. And um, the point is just to answer this question, what is God like? I just need to make sure that my understanding of him is, is accurate. It is correct. And so um, the reason why I'm suggesting, because you could say, well, Christian, why the gospel accounts? Why not just somewhere else in the Bible? Why not just start in Genesis and, you know, ask the question, well, what is God like as you read through? That would, of course, be good, too, because we know that all scripture is God-breathed, right? However, um, the gospel accounts in the person of Jesus Christ, we're going to get the clearest picture of the Lord, period. Like it's going to be, Jesus is going to illustrate and reveal and depict what God is like better than anywhere else. I mean, indeed, we know that Jesus is himself God, and he reveals the Father to us perfectly. Let me read a couple of scriptures here. John 1, let's do, um, we'll do John 1, 14 through 18. It says, and the word became flesh. Of course, this is talking about Jesus. So it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that's the end of the passage. But did you notice that last verse in particular? No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's from the English Standard Version. Let me read that same verse 18 from a... the New Living Translation. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And one more translation as well, because this verse is so important. This is New American Standard Bible, verse 18 again. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. So what do we see from these from this, from this verse? Um we see that Jesus, Jesus, he reveals what God is like to us. Again, the NLT puts it so clearly, he has revealed God to us. Or the ESV, he has made him known. And so it's just this, in Jesus, we see what God is like. And again, it makes sense. Jesus is God. You know, he, he himself said that he and the Father are one. And so we, uh, if we want to know what God is like, we need to look closely at Jesus, very closely at Jesus. Let me give you another passage. John 14, John 14, verses 8 and 9 says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
That's the end of the passage. And so Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, this is very similar to what we just saw in John 1, verse 18, where it's like, if we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look closely at him. One more verse here. John 17, come down here to the bottom. John 17, um, 25 and 26 says, O righteous Father, Jesus is praying here, um, by the way. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And, you know, actually earlier in this same passage here, um, in verse 6 of John 17, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, uh, and they have kept your word. And so we see this idea of Jesus, again, revealing the Father. He says, I have, or I made known to them your name. And then he, earlier he says, I have manifested your name. And so we see, like, if we want to know more about God, look closely at Jesus. Pay attention to him. What is he like? And uh, this will be a fantastic practical starting point for, well, what is the Lord like? Because, guys, this is so important. This is, it, it can't be overstated. Like, I, I've seen in my own life just distorted ideas I have about the Lord. And we bring these to the table. We obviously do. I mean, we have tons of life experiences. And we interpret God a lot of times through what has happened to us or what did not happen to us and how others treated us. And I just want to say that those are not good measures for what God is like. We, we just I, that can give us a very distorted view of God and oftentimes does. And so what, what we need to inform us what God is like is we need Jesus to show us what God is like. And if we want to know, if we want to see that, then we need to go to the scriptures. And that's one of the primary places that we're going to need to go is we need to go to the scriptures, look very closely at Jesus. Now, again, we can the entire scriptures. We're going to be able to see the character of God as we study the scriptures. In fact, that should be um, one of our primary goals when opening the word of God is to know him more. And um, somebody who has been in a, in a mentorship role in my life years ago, when he first began to disciple me, had me open up my Bible to the very front page, those kind of random blank pages uh, that are thicker than all the others that are at the beginning of some Bibles. And he had me write right on the inside, I read this book to know Jesus more. And that's that's kind of like what we're talking about right now. It's like, okay, why are we reading the Bible? Yeah, there's plenty of good reasons to read the Bible. And one of those primary reasons is I want to make sure that my understanding of God is accurate. I want to know Jesus more. I want to know God more. I want to have a clear understanding of what he is like. And so, yes, we can do that from, you know, every single page of the Bible, I'm sure there's, there's every single page is going to have something that we can learn about God, some aspect of his character that we can see, something about him. However, in Jesus, it is so perfectly displayed, which is why I'm suggesting that um, we start here. So let me just, let me give you an example from my own life to hopefully keep this grounded, um, just uh, make, you know, help it make a little bit more sense. One thing that I feel like the Lord has really shown me in recent weeks and months, I guess, is that in my heart, and if I'm being transparent, there is a fear of rejection and abandonment. Like, it's, it's just there. And it's manifested itself in 
innumerable different ways. And But I've begun to see that all these individual manifestations of that are connected by this one thing. It's not like, oh, this over there. All these things are connected by this kind of centralized fear of rejection and abandonment. And so now that I've seen that, it's just, okay, well, that has bled over into every area. And I think it's probably bled over into my relationship with the Lord. I've been very... Um, oftentimes perfectionistic in my relationship with the Lord. I have probably thought um, that I have to constantly 100% behave perfectly, um, never make any mistakes, uh, never you know respond in any way that is at all contrary to his word. And I'm obviously, you know, uh, obeying the word of God is a very, very important thing, but it's almost like there was absolutely no room for mercy or anything like this. It led to me being extremely legalistic. Um, and unfortunately it led to me oftentimes being critical with other people because I think in my heart, that sort of view of God makes me feel super tense, um, super uptight, super, um, on edge because I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no margin for error at all whatsoever. I can't misstep. I can't make a mistake in any way, shape, or form. And so I'm super uptight. And so that same sort of self-criticism that I have as I scrutinize every single solitary thing I do kind of bleeds out in other directions too sometimes. And so, and what is this all based on? It's based on a faulty view of God because you know what the scripture says? Jesus said in John 6, 37, he says, all that the father gives to me, or I'm sorry, all that the father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So uh, there's no room for fear of rejection with the Lord. And look, what do we learn about God from this passage? That he's faithful. That he's faithful. He says, I'll never cast that, i never cast out. And so the question is, you know, he, he again, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've come to him. I'm his. And so are you, if, if you've come to him, if you've placed your faith and your trust in him. And if so, he'll never cast you out, he says. I don't have to be afraid of rejection or abandonment. Um, and again, I've already alluded to the passage in uh, Hebrews 13.5, um, which is uh, honestly a passage that I you know, will reference a whole lot on this podcast. Uh, but again, it says... Um, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that whole, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so I'm just, I'm just saying we have to make sure that our view of God is correct. Am I, do I view God as someone who's going to reject me if I'm less than perfect? Do I view God as someone who's going to abandon me if I fall short in some way, as we all do very frequently? And so what is it for you? And it may be helpful to begin by jotting down a few, there might be some things you already know. So what, or even if you don't know, just jotting down, it's like if you sat down with a Word document or a blank sheet, uh, sheet of paper or something like that and just said, what do I believe about God? And you just start writing things out. And, honest, and, and being honest, not writing out the right answers, but writing out what you really believe in your heart. Even if you know that it's not the right answers, it would be better for you to write those things out and identify them so that you can really begin to address those things. Because a lot of times our heads and our hearts don't agree. We know the right answers in our heads, and yet in our hearts, if we were being honest and peeled back a few layers and looked deep down in there, we'd realize, I'm believing something entirely different. And uh, it could be things like not believing that the Lord loves you, or believing, like I said, some of these things, this fear of rejection sort of stuff. It could be 
thinking that God does not have your best interest in heart at heart. It could be, uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. It could be uh, just kind of in general how God feels about, um, you know, towards towards sinners. It could be how God feels about many things. And so just we the, it's we just want to it's just like another person where it's like you just want to get to know them. You just want to get to know them um, and understand, you know, more what they what they like, what they don't like, what they are like. You want to clarify any misconceptions because, again, if we have wrong ideas about another person, we're going to misinterpret their behavior. And that's true also of the Lord. And so it would be a really good place to start to kind of write down some of the ideas of what you already that you already have and believe about the Lord. And um, it would be, uh, you know, some helpful questions to answer would be um, to get you started because that, that can be kind of hard to get started. It's like, well, what are some predominant emotions that you feel with regard to your relationship towards the Lord? So if there's like when you think about your relationship with the Lord, if you feel things like anxiety, it's like, well, okay, start asking questions. Why? Why do I feel anxiety? Um, if you start feeling things like fear, it's like, well, why fear? Um, if you start feeling things like, you know, joy and happiness, ask why joy and happiness. Just ask these questions to try to identify what it is that you're believing about the Lord. And then from there, see if what you're believing is true. So um, I don't want to belabor that point. So that one of the best things you can do is just to start reading through the Gospels, look closely at Jesus, keep, some, keep something to write with nearby, and to make note of everything that you see and learn about the Lord. Um, simple example for me today. Um, I was reading in Matthew, like I said, and I got stuck on the very first verse of Matthew. And so Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this leads into the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. And, you know, a lot of times we just kind of gloss over genealogies because it's just a bunch of names. You know, uh, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And so it just kind of, you know, keeps on going. But, uh, but there's so this is so rich because it says, like I said, the very first verse says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why were those two ancestors selected out of this list? Cause he's about to go through a whole bunch of ancestors. Why the son of David, the son of Abraham? Well, the Lord had made covenants with both David and Abraham. And Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of these covenants. Um, I'm not saying that every single aspect of these covenants has been completely fulfilled. That's a completely different conversation entirely that I'm not trying to speak to right now. But what I am saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of these covenants, whether present or future. And so, so coming back to what I've been talking about, what does this have to do with knowing God? Well, if you go through this genealogy, it has a lot of people that are less than perfect. And some of them, some of them are going to be more famous. Of course, you're going to have like people say, oh yeah, um, for example, um, uh, Rahab. Rahab is in here. We all know that Rahab was the um, prostitute in Jericho and Canaan who um, helped the um, Israelite spies and then uh, became part of the people of Israel. And so you're like, yeah, she, she led less than a perfect life and she's in the genealogy of Jesus. And that's incredible. And that's true. But here's the thing, Rahab turned out good. Like she led a life that she, you know, uh, forsook, that she repented of, and she joined the people of Israel. And, um, 
you know, so she had a checkered past, but she ended up becoming, um, you know, a, a part of the people of Israel and a follower of the Lord. Presumably so, at least. We know that she became part of the people of Israel. But if you go down in this genealogy, a lot of these kings down here that, you know, is part of a, it's, it's honestly probably one of the lesser known um, parts of the Old Testament where it just starts going through all these kings where, you know, we know who Solomon is and maybe Rehoboam, but then um, Abijah, uh, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh. And so just kind of, I'm just reading some of the names out of here, out of the genealogy of Matthew. But just to say, you know, some of those kings were okay. Some of them did, uh, like uh, Josiah, he was he was a good king. Hezekiah, he he was he was a good king as well. Um, Jehoshaphat also, but a lot of these guys were not good people at all. Some of them started out evil and became good by the end of it. In other words, they by became good. I mean, they they repented and sought the Lord and followed Him, but. Some of them, not so much. Some of these guys were just bad, bad dudes. And for those of you who know the history of Judah, how does this all end? This ends with, at least the the line of the kings here, ends with them going off into Babylon. They're deported into Babylon. It's an act of divine uh, judgment against them where the Lord hands them over to the Babylonians. They're over there for 70 years. And then they, some of them come back to the land. And when they come back to the land, that's where you can read about um, the events of... Uh, you can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, the book of Haggai takes place during this time when, when Haggai was prophesying. And um, same, I think, with uh, Zechariah as well. I think that uh, uh, he was a contemporary of um, Haggai's as well. And so we have some of these, um, you could call them the post-exilic books, the books after the exile. Um, and then they come back. And I'm not going to do a whole overview of the history here, but my whole point is they were sent into Babylon because of their, um, because of their idolatry, because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, because they um, they forsook Him, they um, they were spiritual adulterers and adulteresses, and they went after other gods, and they were handed over into um, into captivity for seventy years, and then they came back. So why do I talk about this here? Because look, Jesus is here; He's the fulfillment of these covenants. He is the fulfillment of these things, these promises that God has made. And there's a whole long line of people who really messed up, who really didn't do things right, and some of them didn't even care about doing the right thing. Not honest mistakes, but just open rebellion. And so what does that show us? That shows us that, look, God still kept his promises. He still kept his promises. The covenant he made with Abraham, the covenant he made with David, those promises are being kept. They're being fulfilled in Jesus, even despite the people's failures, even despite the people's indifferences. And so that means that, you know what? God's a covenant-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. Now, I will say, in the Bible, there are if-then statements. If you do this, then X, Y, or Z will happen. And so I understand that those, we definitely have, you know, a, a, I'm not suggesting that we don't have any personal responsibility. They're absolutely uh, if-then statements. Um but what is my point? My point is just that God, um, that God is a promise-keeping God, that he's a covenant-keeping God, that he honors his word, that he does what he says he's going to do, that we can trust what he says. And so what does this show us about God? It shows that he's trustworthy. He is absolutely trustworthy. And so that's just one simple example. Um, one other way 
that we can come to know God better is, uh, and this is something that I learned from a mentor in my life. He talks about, he talked to me about how, um, how the, the difficulties in our lives, um, can be used to show us the Lord more clearly. And so he was just talking about, he's like, um, he gave an example from his own life where he had set up a Bible study and uh, a prayer meeting and it was early in the morning and he had reached out to some people about it and he goes to this meeting and nobody comes. And so he leaves and he goes down to the beach. We live right on the, uh, it's still early at this point. We live right on the, the, the coast. And he, uh, he, he goes to the beach and he's walking around and he's just kind of thinking through it and processing through all of it. And the Lord made it clear to him. And, and I'm not trying to put words in the Lord's mouth, but what the Lord showed him was essentially now you know how my son felt when he was rejected. And it just broke this guy in a good sort of way. He, he just, I mean, it really impacted him. But what happened? He got to know Jesus a little bit better through that process. And, um, you know, I can think of examples like that from my own life. I remember um, one time the Lord was leading me through a time of uh, surrender. And in, in fact, he said this to me, I, I think, at two separate points. But leading through a time of surrender and it was just a just a time of letting go and it was uh, and it was difficult and i just remember that the lord whispered to my heart i understand i felt like he said i understand and it was he was referencing gethsemane um the time where he did a greater surrender than anything we will ever do and what i was surrendering you know was a one out of ten on the scale and what he surrendered in Gethsemane was an 11 out of 10. And it was just this moment of just surrender. And so, but it was just so touching to me because he said, I understand. He whispered, I understand. Um, and there's been other times where, um, you know, I remember I have done things that I thought were pleasing to the Lord, were good. And I was walking in the wisdom as best I could. And um, and there were people around me who, who were not not only telling me it wasn't wise, but almost kind of criticizing my actions when, I mean, I was I was doing really what I thought the Lord wanted me to do, and it really kind of crushed me a little bit and discouraged me whenever I was met with such negativity from people around me. And I remember I went to my room and I prayed, and I just was talking to the Lord about it, and um, He showed me that you know the people close to Him thought that He was crazy too. Um, Listen to what Mark 3, 20 and 21 say. They say, then he went home. We're talking about Jesus, of course. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so Jesus's own family said he is out of his mind. Um, and this was obviously, uh, this is Mark 3. So this is relatively early um, in the gospel account here. But you know, the Lord made it clear to me he that he understood and that he said, you know, like like I said, he whispered to my heart um, that, you know, those close to him uh, thought he was crazy too, even though he was doing the right thing. And so in that moment, uh, those two examples when he said, I understand, and that are just two times where it's like I came to understand him and know him better, see him more clearly um, as a result of 
uh, just kind of unpleasant circumstances, really, but that he spoke to me through them. And so that's also just anytime you're going through something difficult, just go talk to the Lord about it and let him open your eyes to what's really going on here. And I'm not trying to say that bad things are good. And I'm not trying to minimize anyone's struggle. I'm not trying to um, say why something happened. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that at all. Um, all I am saying is that the Lord, just let him comfort you in the process and let him show you that he understands because not only did what he say matter so much to me, which it really did, but also just the fact that he came alongside me and comforted me and encouraged me when I was really feeling down, that shows us what God is like. That shows what he's like. One time, let me just give you another story. One time I was getting ready to go into a small group and, um, I have sometimes not done very well in small groups because, listen, guys, I, the Lord has had to work out a lot of um, a lot of pride and criticism and stuff like this out of my heart. And there have been times I've gone into Bible studies and where I'm not the leader, and yet I assume the position of like teacher, and it's just not good. And I leave driving home, kind of beating myself up, feeling bad about it because it's just wasn't good. It was just uncomfortable, awkward, and it was almost like I was trying to impress people, but in the process. I was trying to impress them. I probably, you know, lost their respect and really lost the opportunity for a genuine relationship because I'm trying to be, oh, look at me, I'm teaching. And so I was getting ready to go into one of these groups and I knew, I knew, um, my, uh, my propensity with this. And so I just said, Lord, and, and I, I had heard somebody pray what I'm about to say. And so I said it cause I thought it was a great prayer. And so I prayed before going in with regard to that specific thing. I said, um, I said, Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I feel like in that moment, he said to me instantly, I have, and I will, I have, and I will, I have had mercy and I will have mercy. And he didn't put qualifiers. I will have mercy if no, I have, and I will. And I was so touched by that. And it so built me up. And it just, again, you, you, the Lord, I mean, prayer is so important. And so kind of combining these. So how, how do we get to know what he's like? Well, look closely at the person of Jesus, spend time in the gospels, but then pray, ask the Lord to show you what he's like, talk to him about stuff, especially not only, but especially the difficulties when things don't happen the way you'd like for them to, when you're facing heartache, when you're struggling, when something is not going the way you want, he understands and he will come alongside you and he will encourage you and he will build you up. But sometimes we're running too quickly, doing everything except sitting at his feet and listening to his teaching that we don't even really hear from him. He's willing to speak. Are we willing to listen? And so we just have to put ourselves in that position. And so I just want to encourage you going to this new year. What is your idea of God? What is your understanding of God? Is it based on the scriptures? Is it based on what he's shown you about himself? Or is it just based on stuff that you've kind of already brought to the table or just conclusions that you yourself have come to? Because we got to make sure this is of the utmost importance. If we miss this, then we miss everything. We have to know what God is actually like. We have to understand. But I hope this has been encouraging to you guys, and I welcome you to join me on this journey of going through the Gospels and just looking very closely at Jesus and jotting down the things that you realize. And then not only jotting them down, but meditating on those things and letting the Holy Spirit move them from your head to your heart. Um, but as always, I hope this is encouraging. I hope that you guys are doing well. And I hope that you are going into 2020 expecting great things, hoping for great things. Remember, God is our, he's our perfect father, and he loves us. And he takes care of us. And so I just, um, I hope that as you go into this new year, you come to experience him um, as your perfect father in a clear, more um, real way. All right, God bless you guys.